1: Hi, I'm Seth Abramovich. I'm a senior writer at The Hollywood Reporter, and I'd like to welcome you to It Happened in Hollywood. It's a new podcast I'll be hosting with the help of my good friend, Chip Pope. Hi there, that's me. I'm Chip. I'm a TV writer and a pop culture enthusiast. In each episode, we're going to be taking a journey backwards in time and revisiting some of the wildest chapters in Hollywood history. Iconic films, zeitgeisty TV shows, infamous lawbreakers, And just the random weirdness that color the place we call La La Land.
0: Yes, and we think that you'll find in Hollywood, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And that's what this show is about.
1: On each episode, we're going to be going to a key figure in whatever topic we're covering and interviewing them. And then uh, after the fact, Seth and I will comment on those pre recorded interviews. So let's get right to it. Welcome to the first episode of It Happened 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 in in Hollywood. Hollywood. Let's do some scene setting. It's December 1973. Richard Nixon, one month before, told a roomful of reporters in Orlando, Florida, I am not a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. And in movie theaters across the nation, Robert Redford and Paul Newman were playing crooks in a blockbuster hit called The Sting. Then this 38-year-old wonderkind, Billy Friedkin, comes along, riding high, having just won the Oscar for The French Connection in 72. I love that he's a 38-year-old wonder boy because the industry in
0: 1973 is run by 90-year-olds. So (laughs) he's young blood at
1: 38. He is. He's a whippersnapper. And anticipation for his chosen follow-up picture to French Connection is at a fever pitch. His choice was The Exorcist. Now, this was a big-budget adaptation of a smash-hit novel about a little girl who gets possessed by the devil. The film was plagued by infighting, delays, it went way over budget. He acted kind of crazy, firing people left and right. People thought there was a curse on it? Yep, there was supposedly a curse, and... There was all kinds of reports that this thing was going to be a disaster, but when it finally came out, it became the all-time record-breaking movie for Warner Brothers at the box office and went on to become one of the most admired and imitated horror films of all time. It's interesting that you should
0: mention The Sting because uh, that was just like nostalgic entertainment that took place in the 30s, whereas The Exorcist was a very edgy movie, very hard R. A hard R. I mean, pretty much almost an X. I mean, this movie was like a cold bucket of holy water in the face of a pubescent girl. I mean, even The Hollywood Reporter, this very publication seemed genuinely shocked by it. In its review, they called it, quote, an abomination, end quote. And they called it the wretched excess of the year. But at the same time, they also suggested that it may be the most frightening movie ever made.
1: And 45 years later, it still pretty much lays claim to that title of scariest movie ever made. This week's special guest, we have the man responsible for making it. That's right. Director William Friedkin. What a thrill to talk to this guy. He was great. He was absolutely wonderful. I didn't know what to expect. I I thought he might be a little off the wall looking at some of the films he's made. I forget his age, 82? I didn't know what we were going to get, but he was such a nice guy. It was just a thrill to sit at the feet of a master filmmaker. So why don't we get right into it? Here's William Friedkin telling us about how it all began. The book, The Exorcist by William Peter Blatty.
2: It's a wonderfully written novel and screenplay by Bill Blatty, who basically invented the concept of exorcism for the modern world. Very little is known about it, and was then. He couldn't find out anything about it. And then he went to the Library of Congress. He was an undergraduate at Georgetown in 1949, when the case that inspired him to write the novel occurred in a place in Maryland. It wasn't the case that he wrote about, but it inspired him to write his novel, which took him 15 years to write. And he could get no information out of the church. And they don't speak about it, and for good reason. It's a very private matter, and they don't want to put names out there. or say, This person was possessed, but I know the name and everything else about the young man who was the case that inspired Blatty in 1949. And he had done a great deal of study into the matter before he was able to write his novel, which is a work of fiction. The church, once he contacted them about this, in the Washington DC diocese, he lived in Georgetown. The church asked him to completely fictionalize, though they would give him no information They did put him in touch with the exorcist, who was uh, a priest at uh, Lexian Brothers Hospital in St. Louis, Missouri, where the exorcism was done. And the priest was Father William Bowdern, B-O-W-D-E-R-N. And Bowdern wouldn't give Blatty any of the details, but he wrote him a letter, a copy of which I have, back in 1950 in which he says, all I can tell you about this case is that it is the real thing. I I stake my life on the fact that this case was the real thing.
0: So it took like 20 years for this story to be told.
1: You know, Warner Brothers paid a lot of money for, for the book. They were the oh, okay. only studio that wanted it, but they wanted it really badly because it was such a big bestseller. Then it became a question, once they landed on Friedkin as the director, uh, about casting... The mother, the main character, besides Reagan, who gets possessed in the film. And the character was based on Shirley MacLaine, who was a friend of Blatty. Hmm. So she becomes a actress. So all these characters were were not just taken out of nowhere. You know, they were friends of Blatty's. Friedkin told us some interesting stuff about how he eventually got to the actress who eventually would play the part.
2: We had an ideal cast. Oh yeah, the cast is sensational. Lee J. Cobb and Max von Sydow, and then originally the studio wanted uh, either Audrey Hepburn, or Anne Bancroft or Jane Fonda, and I thought you know that's all fine. So they contacted Audrey Hepburn, who was living in Italy and married to an Italian doctor, and we sent her the script, and she said you know I- I'll do this but you have to shoot it in Rome. And I said, I, I can't do that. Can't you come to America? She said, no, I don't want to leave Italy, but I'll do it if you come to Rome. And I, I just weighed all of that because I thought she would have been great. And I thought, well, you know, I, I didn't speak Italian and the, all the rules with the crew are different and everything else, it's all a different world. and. You know I needed to bring in every actor you know into Italy and the expenses would have been crazy and the language problem virtually insurmountable so I said I can't do that and so she passed then Anne Bancroft we sent the script to and she said look I'd love to do this but I have to tell you I'm in my first month of pregnancy she said, if you guys are willing to wait nine months and I said look, I would love to, but I'm reasonably sure that when you have your child, you're not going to want to go to work and probably not on this material. And we don't want, we can't wait nine months. So we then went to Jane Fonda, who responded, why would I want to be in a piece of capitalist rip-off bullshit like this? You know, I, I said why don't you tell us what you really mean?
0: <laughs> so Jane Fonda didn't want to do it. She just won the Oscar for Clute he just won the Oscar for French Connection, two lobsters in the cage. <laughs> right? No, it's contentious. What is two co- lobsters? Co- two lobsters mean? in the cage. Is that an expression? Freaking and Fonda, yeah. Two lobsters that in the they cage. Fight? Yes, they start fighting in the cage. <laughs> and so seriously, this is why a lot of really big people can't work together because they both have capital and they don't have to beg for anything
1: yeah it's interesting though that she saw it as such a commercial you know project because it was so over the top the language and the material it just does not read to me as a commercial hollywood project but she was at the height of her uh sort it, of activism and that was when 72 yeah. was when she went to Vietnam and became, quote unquote, Hanoi Jane. So I guess she was feeling uh, very extreme and left wing and against the studio system at that point. Right, right. So now we can talk about who it did become, the incredible Ellen Burstyn. I can't even imagine the movie now without her. Right. It's hard.
0: Ellen Burstyn is so perfect and just emotionally frail and also strong and tender and everything. And you totally believe her relationship with Reagan. And I can't even imagine what she's up to lately. She goes to my gym. What? Yes. Holy cow. She can bench like 150? No, <laughs> I don't know if she could do that. But I have seen her at my gym. Wow. Just
1: as an aside. But um, yeah, he, he wanted her. Actually, there's an interesting story uh, that she wanted him. She campaigned for the role. Yeah. And so another lobster added to that little. More lobsters in the
0: cage. <laughs> How many lobsters can be in one cage? But this lobster wanted a play.
1: Let's uh, <laughs> let's go back and uh, to uh, our friend William Friedkin, and I think we can call him that at this point, and, and hear about how Ellen uh, got involved in The
2: Exorcist. Ellen Burstyn had been calling me, and she called me. She had been nominated for a Supporting Actress Award in The Last Picture Show, and she said, do you know who I am? And I said, yeah, I, I do. And she said... Uh, well I do you believe in fate I said yeah I guess so she said well I'm fated to play this part and I kept telling her, I said look the studio wants these three other women and they all fell by the wayside and she was the only one left stand studio did not want to make the film with Ellen Burstyn they were fine with the rest of the cast but they wanted a big star and the guy who was head of the studio was a guy named ted ashley and he said to me bill i have complete faith and confidence in you but ellen burston will play this part over my dead body he said do you understand what that means i said uh, yeah ted but please i mean i think she be... he said no no i don't think you do understand and he got up from behind his desk and he lay down on the floor at the side of his desk and he said Come on, walk over me. I said, Ted, come on, please. He said, no, I want you to walk over me. So I (laughs) proceed to walk towards him and to try and walk over. And he grabs my leg and he held onto it in a vice grip. And he said, you see, this is what will happen if I'm dead. I will come back from the dead and hold you. you cannot cast Ellen Burstyn. So many years later, after Ted had retired... I went to a black tie opening of the King Tut exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum in New York. And there was Ted Ashley, who had retired. And I see him and I said, look, hey, Ted, by that time, the film had made about three or four or five hundred million dollars at the box office. And I said, so how do you feel about Burston now? And he said, if we had Jane Fonda, we'd have be over a billion. Oh, what are you talking about, for Christ's sakes? Did you see her or not?
0: <laughs> That's a crazy story. It is
1: a crazy story. Can you
0: imagine an executive lying down right now?
1: It's like out of a Coen Brothers movie. It's like they don't, I don't think Hollywood works like that anymore. Bernie Zabub, <laughs> <is
0: evolved. laughs> you're, you're killing me. Throw a stone and find any actress better than Ellen Burstyn. And do me a favor. Throw it hard. <laughs> she was Thurston Burston. She was. Thir- she wanted to part. Thurston
1: Burston. She. That's how you get a part. If you're. If you're an actor, and actress in Hollywood, take a lesson from Ellen Burston. She convinced the director that they were fated to work together. Yes, yeah, she went after it. Like the only part I ever even wanted
0: was in a part in High Fidelity, and they said no thanks, and I just went, oh, I guess that's meant to be.
1: So you were fated the lesson not is... to be in that movie. <laughs>
0: No, I, are you kidding? I love that movie. Uh, but I was fated not to, Oh, my gosh. But anyhow, this isn't about me. But there was also another actor that they didn't think was right for the part.
1: That's true. Yeah, for the part of Father Karras, who ended up being Jason Miller, another person, I can't think of anyone else playing that part. The road to him getting the part was equally wacky, even way wackier than Ellen Burstyn. The guy had never acted before.
2: We had an ideal cast, and it was all the movie got. We immediately wanted Max von Sydow and Lee Jacob and Jack McGowan and then Kitty Wynn. But Jason Miller had never been in a film. He was a playwright, and I saw his play in New York that championship season, which wound up winning the Pulitzer Prize, and it was about a basketball team that reunites years later, and it turns out they cheated to win the title, and the whole play was just exuded lapsed Catholicism. And I remember saying to my casting director, who was Woody Allen's casting director, Julia Taylor, and I remember saying to her, I'd like to meet this guy. She said, why? I said, I I mean, there's a lot of lapsed Catholicism on that stage, I'd like to just talk to him. I love this play. I had no idea of casting him for The Exorcist. He came up to my hotel room in New York and we had a very bad meeting. He thought he'd later told me that I was interested in acquiring the rights to his play to do as a film and I thought he was too short but it turned out and he had not acted he had acted in small parts in road companies he was a milkman in Flushing, New York, and a playwright whose first play, uh, produced play, wins the Pulitzer Prize, that championship season. And we had a very bad meeting. I had the flu, and I had all these pills laid out for the flu, and he thought I was a pillhead, and I thought he was not very interesting. And we had a meeting, went back, and I cast somebody else signed somebody else to play it, that part Stacy Keach. I get a call from Jason Miller in New York about two weeks after this and he says hey you remember that meeting we had that exorcist thing you were telling me about it yeah he said I am that guy he said I am that character I went to Catholic University for three years I studied for the priesthood. I had a crisis of faith and dropped out. And that was my character. I said, well, that's all very interesting, but you're not that guy. We hired somebody else and he's the guy. He said, I'm telling you, you do you ever do like, a, what, what do they call it, a screen test? I said, no, I've never filmed a screen test. He said, you gotta test me. Uh, I said, why do I have to test you? I've cast somebody else. This is literally the way the conversation went. I said, I got to test you. He said, I'm telling you, I am this guy. Out of my respect for him, I said, all right, you get your ass on a plane and get out here, and I'll shoot a test with you. And when I'm finished, I'll take it out of the camera, and I'll give it to you, and you can show it to your kids. He said, okay. I said, how soon can you get out here? He said, oh, it'll take me about a week. I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, I don't fly. I said, are you crazy? Are you out of your mind? No, I'll be out there on a train in four days. So he came out, and Burstyn was out there. I said, Let's, we're going to do a test with this guy. The scene where you're walking through this park, and you tell him that you think your daughter's possessed. And then I'm going to ask him to say the Mass, into a close-up and then I want I'm gonna put a camera over your shoulder and I just want you to interview him about who he is and where he came from off the script and all of that and we did that and I'll tell you at the end of the test she came up to me and she said you're not gonna cast this guy are you I said why not she said well first of all he's not an actor and second he's too sure I mean she said When I tell him my daughter's possessed, I've got to collapse into his arms in tears. And I don't think he has the chops or, you know, or the size. And I was not that impressed with the test either. And then the next day, I saw the rushes. And the camera just loved him. The camera loved him. And I instantly, I said... We're going to do this. And I went to Warner Brothers and Bill Blatty. And he said, who the hell is this guy? Are you crazy? Again, Ashley. But by then, they were so fed up with me. But even Blatty was. He went to my agent. They both lived in the Malibu colony then. He went, knocked on my agent's door, and he said, you know, I have complete faith in Billy, but he's just screwed up the movie. He hired this guy who has never acted to play the lead, and my agent told me. I just believed. I just believed that th- I didn't have to direct this guy. He was the guy.
1: I mean, it is pretty amazing trajectory from Milkman in the in Yonkers or wherever he That's lived. That's amazing. To winning Pulitzer Prize for your first play. To starring in The Exorcist. So now we've got two short actors in the film. <laughs> You're <laughs> so lying now, about so, her being three,
0: too. <laughs> so now they've cast two little people in the movie. <laughs> so,
1: so she was concerned. She wanted a big, strapping Stacey Keach type right. to fling herself into at her darkest moment. And instead, the slight of build... Jason Miller, he got the part, and that's that was the power that he had as a director at that point—that he could just do that. And they had already they had to pay Stacy Keach out crazy. So with one major character cast in Ellen Burstyn, they now had to cast the more challenging character, which was Reagan. Oh, the the young girl played by Linda Blair. Now, why do you think it was so challenging to cast this part? Probably the language and the (laughs) things that happen in the movie. You yeah. might not want your 12 year old to be in this movie It gets pretty extreme And I don't even know if they could make a movie like that again They would have to just CG the kid completely Because the things that came out of her mouth And the things she was called on to do were Are pretty extreme Exactly you get
0: Emma Stone playing a (laughs) (laughs)
1: 14-year-old. I don't think Emma Stone would do things with a crucifix that Linda Blair did. But they had looked at thousands of of girls and of different ages, and uh, he was having a hard time. And if you didn't have the right girl, there was no
2: exorcist. But then one magical day. I auditioned, oh, hundreds of girls. And there were thousands that came in to read, not with me, but all over the country and I would get videos and I, I must have met over a hundred myself and I got to a point where I felt I can't cast this I cannot find a twelve-year-old girl who will ever be able to do this and we started looking at sixteen-year-olds and seventeen-year-old uh, girls who looked younger and that wasn't going to work either for the same reasons And One day when I was sitting in my office at Warner Brothers in New York, which was at 666 Fifth Avenue, (laughs) that address is still there. The building's owned by Jared Kushner and his family. And it's still 666. That was Warner Brothers' offices before they moved into the Time Warner building.
1: Okay, can we just talk about how all satanic roads lead to 666 Fifth Avenue? Yeah. Like what else besides? I mean, I don't know. Isn't that amazing that it happened also at six six six? Yeah, I mean, uh, I wonder if six 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 is still Warner Brothers because they better Warner Brother.
0: <laughs> you see the police, Warner Brother. That's what I always say.
2: I was sitting in my office with my head in my hands, in like complete despair, and. Um, my assistant buzzed me and said there's a woman out here she doesn't have an appointment her name is Eleanor Blair and she's brought her daughter with her who's 12 would you see her? and I thought you know I wasn't going to I figured this isn't going to work I can't cast this and all right, let her in she came in and I knew immediately she was the one the minute I saw her, she was bright, cute, intelligent as hell. She was a straight-A student in grammar school at, in Westport, Connecticut. She had never acted, but she had done some modeling, you know, little girls' dresses that you see in the newspaper and stuff like that. She came in and s- sat down, and I said, hello, Linda. How are you? She said, great. How are you? I said, fine. I said, do you know anything about the exorcist? She said, uh, yeah, I, I read the book. I said, you did? You, oh, yeah. And I looked at her mother. Mother nodded. And uh, I said, What's, what is it about? She said, that's oh, about a little girl who gets possessed by the devil and does a whole lot of bad things. I said, well, like, like what sort of things? And she said, well, she pushes a man out of her bedroom window And she hits her mother across the face, and she masturbates with a crucifix. And I said, "Uh, do you know what that means? And she said, yeah, it's like jerking off, isn't it? And I looked at her mother, who was still smiling, and I said, have you ever done that? And she said, sure, haven't you? (laughs) And I hired her. Hey, I, I think we've got a guest. You're gonna die up there.
0: Okay, I got to say, I nervously laughed when he said she'd masturbated with a crucifix. And I was like,
1: it's <laughs> hilarious. I have I to could... say, I nervously laughed when he said, have you in front of the mother. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, I just can't imagine that audition It, it was the 70s. Again. Yeah, it was
0: the 70s. You could get away with more. I don't think so.
1: Oh, it was the <laughs> 70s. You had to be
0: real careful. <laughs> with that crucifix. Yeah, I mean, look what he's got so far. He's hired Ellen Burstyn and two bums that have never been in a movie. This is a crazy,
1: it's a crazy story. Who's the other
0: bum? Well, you got Linda, she hasn't been acting. And you got (laughs) Jason Miller, he hasn't been acting. I wouldn't characterize a 12-year-old girl as a bum.
1: (laughs) She's a bum. She doesn't know what she's doing. He actually did tell another great story about getting a literal bum, wino, out of a bar.
0: But Um, we won't go into
1: that one. But But he did hire a bum off the street to be in the movie. Three bums in the movie, and Ellen person. It's all
0: she's busy trying to get ripped at the gym, and she's got to deal with this.
1: Well, so he finally gets his dream, Reagan, in this young uh, Linda Blair. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing so far sounds fraught with obstacles. Let's face
0: it, you know, trying to cast
1: the but he weeds, got everything he to... wanted, it just took a little more effort.
0: Okay, so not exactly fraught with obstacles, but. <laughs> You know, it is
1: entertaining. Uh. But he did have very extreme demands in making this, and he had the power to do it, which I thought was really interesting. So for one thing is he wanted that whole uh, prologue sequence at the beginning of the film to be shot on location in Iraq.
0: That's crazy. It's
1: and war zone. Th- they said, absolutely not. There's three different wars going on here. There is no infrastructure or any kind of film business in Iraq. You cannot have that happen but he got them to say yes somehow which is unbelievable that he he actually got to shoot in Iraq no studio film had ever shot in Iraq and the sequence although some people think it's a little meandering and doesn't cut enough to the action it's pretty spooky and not us and it's evocative it's de- it definitely is a cool sequence but the other thing is they wanted to shoot all the the interiors and the Georgetown stuff everything on a hollywood set and he was dead set against that right he wanted the verite Yeah, he's he's got the verite. He wanted to shoot the exteriors in Georgetown and he wanted to shoot the interiors of the home on a set that he was going to build in studios in Manhattan. And he had an interesting relationship with Blatty and they kind of pulled uh, a little stunt to to get the the studios to give them what they wanted because they were basically on the same page.
2: You know, the studio originally wanted me to shoot the whole film in Hollywood on the back lot at Warner Brothers. And I said, that's ridiculous. I'm going to go to Iraq? They said, you can't get insurance to go to Iraq. Iraq is at war with three countries on all of its borders and with the Kurds within the country. I said, I don't care. I'm going to, find my, I'm going to shoot the opening in Iraq. Blatty and I figured that the thing that Warners was most afraid of and why they might back off from interfering with us was if he and I had an argument If he and I couldn't agree, because he had enormous controls. No other studio wanted the film except Warner's, but they agreed to pay an exorbitant sum to him. And in fact, they gave him the rights to the negative after 50 years, which is in five years, Bill Blatty owns his wife and kids own The Exorcist. And so we figured... Let's stage an argument in front of these guys. And we worked it out because he was a prankster and so was I. And so we have a production meeting with Warners where they're saying to us all the things I've just told you. And Blatty said, Bill, we had this all planned. He said, Bill, I have an idea on how I think we could save by my figures, about $73,000 off the budget. I said, well, how is that, Bill? And he said, well, if we only serve one salad dressing to the crew at meals, you know, lunch and dinner. I said, that's a great idea. What do you think we should do? What about oil and vinegar? And he said, oh, no, I don't like oil and vinegar dressing. I said, well, what would you want? He said, green goddess. I said, Bill, are you crazy? The crew doesn't want green goddess salad dressing. These guys are tough guys. They don't want no stinking green goddess. And he said, well, I'm the producer, and I want green goddess salad dressing. We escalated this into where we're both standing up and screaming at each other across the table, and he turns on his heels and walks out. The Warners guys are terrified. They say, does this happen often? And I said, every day. (laughs) And that was the end of the... I said, I'm going to shoot the whole film in New York, not in Hollywood. I don't want to go on the 405 and do a fake Georgetown. I'm going to shoot it in New York with exteriors in Georgetown, and I'm going to Iraq. And we accomplished all of that because they didn't want to mess with us. They thought we were crazy as hell. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and would bring the whole thing down. <laughs> they thought we were both nuts, and in many ways we were. <laughs> but we devised a whole scheme to make it look like we were arguing all the time, and they would just back away.
1: Now <laughs> we have the whole great. story.
0: So pre-production sounds like it had a share of hiccups. What about when they uh, produced the movie?
1: It had more than hiccups. It was almost as if, and they say, the production was cursed. Ooh. But Friedkin says it wasn't cursed but he will admit there was one really bad setback.
2: I got a call at 4 in the morning one day from my production manager. He said, don't bother to come in this morning. I said, why, am I fired? He said, "Uh, no, but the set burned to the ground. We had no idea. We, We built the whole interior of the house, and we built the little girl's bedroom separately with the refrigerated units, and it was the... The whole thing burned to the ground. There was a guard outside the set on a soundstage on the west side of Manhattan. And he saw the smoke coming under the door. And he opened the door and there's the whole set in flames. There was it, a
1: lot of bad news on, on this shoot.
2: Not really. No. That, that's a myth. The thing that affected me the most was that. The set burning to the ground for no reason. The theory was that because it was an old soundstage, there were pigeons flying around in the rafters. And the theory was that a pigeon flew into a light box and set off a short circuit. And the insurance company paid off, but it took six weeks to rebuild the set. So, you know, a lot of people
1: say that of all the scenes in the film, The one that disturbs them the most doesn't even have to do with satanic possession. It's the scene in the medical center when she gets a needle put in her neck and they do some sort of procedure on her. Right. It's very difficult to watch because it's a 12-year-old girl getting needles and things
0: shoved into her neck.
1: And there's this spray of blood that comes out like a fountain. And this is when they're trying to figure out what's wrong with her using Western medicine. But in talking to to the director, we learned something crazier than you could possibly imagine, and it was the thing that led him into his follow-up to The
2: Exorcist. The young man who worked with the neurosurgeon, I don't even remember the neurosurgeon's name now, but they're both in the film. And, but I remember the young man whose name was Paul Bateson, because he was a really nice young guy, He's the guy that helps Linda Blair onto the table and makes her comfortable and puts the iodine around where they're going to inject in her neck. I remember that he wore a leather studded bracelet and he had an earring, which in 1972 was not common in the workplace at all. And so I noticed that just in passing, because you didn't see that in the workplace. At that time. But he was a cool young guy. And then, about four or five years later, after the film had been in release and was still running in theaters, I see the front page of the New York Post and the Daily News, and he's accused of five or six murders. And they were murders in the S&M bars on the west side of Manhattan and way downtown. Little West 12th Street and 12th Street. And he was accused of these murders. And I look at this picture in the, and I'm thinking, who the hell is, I know this guy. Who, oh my God, this is the guy from NYU Medical Center. So his lawyer's name was in the story. And I called his lawyer and I told him who I was and I said, You think I could visit with Paul? I don't know what drew me to do it. I was just curious. How could this guy, who I had met under those circumstances, have done these murders? So his lawyer said, "Okay." after a couple of days, he'll see you. He was at Rikers Island, which was then a holding prison in New York before you were sentenced and tried. And I went down to see him at Rikers Island, up to see him. It was uptown. I went through about eight layers of bureaucracy, and I get into his cell, where there's a guy outside, and I'm sitting with him in his cell, and he was very cheerful. Hi, how you do? How's the film doing? He says to me. I said, "It's doing great, Paul." And right after that, I said, "Paul, did you kill these people?" And he said, "I remember killing this one guy." I said, "What happened?" He said. I used to go down to the mine shaft, and this was the most extreme m club in the country then. It was owned by the mafia, by the Genovese family. And I happened to know the guy who was the head of the Genovese family, whose name was Matty the Horse Ionello. So I said, well, What happened? He said, Well, I picked this guy up at the mine shaft, and I took him home, and we. We did some drugs, and we had a lot to drink, and I remember I hit him over the head with a frying pan, and then I cut him up, and I put his body parts in a plastic bag, and I threw him in the East River. Well, this is how they got him. In very small print, at the very bottom of the plastic bag, in small print that you can't even read, it said... Property of NYU Medical Center, Neuropsychiatric Division. So they swarmed it, and there he was in his background. And he said, you know, that's the only one I remember. He said, but they want me to confess to another five or six. They were known as the cuppy murders, C-U-P-P-I, which were body parts in the morgue found in plastic bags. And they were called cuppies, which meant... Circumstances unknown pending a police investigation, just arms, legs, torso, whatever. And I said, well, what are you going to do? He said, well, I'm thinking it over. He said, because if I confess to six or seven of these, they'll lower my sentence. I said, well, why would they do that? He said, to get the headlines, you know, police solve six, seven cuppy murders. I said, what are you going to do? He said, I'm thinking about it. He confessed to all of them, and he got out after 25 years, and he's out now. The last I heard, he's living in upstate New York, and his name was not changed. Wow. Well, that's pretty chilling. Yeah. He's living a quiet life
0: of, I guess, not murdering other gays. I wonder if he's on Grinder. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Murder you <laughs> question mark. Is that his screen name? But that was pretty heavy. I did not know Cruising came directly, so directly out of the Exorcist. An actual actor who has, you know, pretty a lot of screen time for just a background actor goes on to become a serial killer that inspires cruising, this crazy movie set in the gay leather S and M world. Yeah. Oh yeah.
0: It's insane. I I like how diplomatic uh Mr. Friedkin was that he didn't just be like he's got an earring and a leather stud, you know, a gay. I mean, <laughs> I, he was very like he, he didn't <laughs> he's from a different generation.
1: Well, he, we should say that he's the director of The Boys in the Band, which is considered the first mainstream gay movie, and Cruising is also crazily authentic. He, he went right into that world and used the real people hanging out in that world as the extras. So He's a straight man, but he's never shied away from from it. And as he told us, it was all about just telling a great story. He's not exactly a gay or straight filmmaker, but so
0: this production has a lot of interesting stories behind it. And so it takes about ten months of shooting, and they finally uh, are ready to go into post production. And, and the so- whole
1: time they've they've used Linda Blair's voice saying all these profane, horrific things, but all along he knew he wanted. You know, to dub in the voice of, of the demon, whose name is Pazuzu. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he tried different things. Uh, he tried some male uh, like announcer voiceover guys. But then he had a stroke of genius because none of those were working. And in the facts of his mind, he came up with an actress's name and uh, asked her if she'd be interested. He'd never met her or worked with her before.
2: One of the greatest actresses in radio was Mercedes McCambridge. And she worked with Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the air. She had won two Academy Awards for Giant and uh, all, the all, King's Men. all the King's Men. And I didn't know if she was still alive. But we did a search and found out she was in Dallas, Texas at the time doing a road company of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And I called her in Dallas and I told her what I was doing and she said look I've got another month of doing this then I'll come back to LA and I'll see your film and I'll see if I can do what you want she perfect her voice was neutral it was neither male nor female she came in and she saw the film and she said okay here's what I'm gonna need to do she said do you know anything about me and I said I only know that you are a great actress She said, I was an AA. I had a serious drinking problem. And she said, I I have not had a drink in, I don't know how many years. She said, I'm going to have to drink in order to get my voice into the condition you're gonna want. I'm gonna have to drink and take raw eggs. And she said, I'm Catholic and I want two priests that I know, in the recording studio with me at all times. Okay.
1: Okay, first of all, greatest writer (laughs) of all time. Raw eggs, hooch, And two priests. (laughs) The priest to ward off the evil, I suppose. And I love that. She says, I'm in AA, but I need alcohol to do this part. And and Friedkin's like, okay, how much? Yeah, (laughs) I'm willing to fall off the wagon for my craft. And I'm willing to let you do that.
0: Hooch, I got it. Cigarettes, yes. Raw eggs, cluck, cluck.
2: She said, then I want you to tie me to a chair I will be crouched on a chair you know like knee bend and I want you to tie my hands behind me and I will be drinking constantly and smoking again (laughs) we do it like a line at a time and she would simply breathe into a mic like this (sighs) but three or four sounds would come out of her throat because of raw eggs and jack daniels and she'd finish a couple of hours and then go back to where the two priests were sitting in the room and she would huddle up in their arms and they would comfort her and this went on for uh, at least a month every day probably more
0: what an excellent day for an exorcism you'd like that intensely what's that holy water you keep it away
1: uh,
2: oh, it burns! Oh, it burns!
1: Now, just think about that. A month. A month. Tied a up month. in a chair, <laughs> drinking it with e- raw eggs, Jack, get- <laughs> and huddling in a corner with
0: two priests. Nothing, yeah, nothing next to her but a vomit shower, I guess. <laughs> I mean,
1: if it's for a month, 31 next time days, you watch, next time you watch the movie, just that's what
2: it took to get this voice. And she said to me, I think in order to keep the illusion I don't want any credit for this. I don't want my name on the screen. I don't want you to put my name on the screen because I don't want people to think about anyone having done this voice. Whatever you want. I said, I'll give you any credit that you want. No, I don't want a credit. Then we went to the world premiere and the National Theater. The audience went nuts. And she came up to me in the parking lot and said, Billy, where's my credit? (laughs) And uh, I said, you told me. No, I didn't. I never told you. I don't know. But you can look at her contract today if Warners will show it. And you'll see it's not even asked for. But we gave it to her. We had only 26 prints. And we replaced the last reel and put her name on the screen. And I swear to God, she asked that it not be there until she saw the finished film.
0: I, yeah, I never said that. I was drunk. I was drunk the whole time on raw eggs. Why, what do you mean? I've got a perfect timeline here in my head. You asked me if I could go to see a leprechaun, and I said, will there be eggs? And you said, yes. And I said, okay, I'll be there. I'm taking the first steamer to Los Angeles with Jason Miller. It's going to take us four weeks.
1: <laughs> and then
0: she hiccups a whole egg. <laughs> <laughs> she she started, started doing her magic tricks. All right, so the movie well, is finished.
1: The movie is finished, yeah and, and they well, it is interesting that he only put it out on about 20 screens at first and he obsessively would drive around from from projection booth to projection booth, making sure it was up to his standards. And he knew all the projectionists by name. Right. And you could
0: change reels back then. You couldn't do that now with digital, but, you know, if you needed to put Reel 7, a new Reel 7, they could get a new Reel 7.
1: Yeah. He likened it to being the director of a play and making sure the play was, you know, performed properly every night. But of course, you know, in that rollout, which was a pre Jaws rollout, uh, but Jaws took a lot of lessons of The Exorcist in its own rollout. It became a blockbuster film by, you know, building it up the amount of theaters over and over but it started with a very small run and from pretty early on the the audience reaction was unlike any other movie that had ever come out
0: right and it was released at christmas which is interesting now you take it for granted that big movies come out at christmas but it was a christmas movie about possession which is take the family
1: yeah but it was about jesus as well jesus wins you're right i mean it's good versus evil it's my favorite christmas movie
0: Oh, what about the Santa Claus, Tim Allen? That's probably my favorite <laughs> not Christmas movie. movie. <laughs> yeah, oh, were, it
1: is. <laughs> were you ever present during these people passing out or yeah. vomiting? So, tell me about that experience.
2: Oh, people were yelling and screaming in theater. There was one case in Chicago. A woman saw the film at the Chicago Theater at the opening, and um, she passed out, threw up and passed out. And the manager took care of her, He had her brought to his office and they became friendly and they were going to get married. But it happened because she passed out, threw up and passed out. All of Westwood, this would happen every day I would get reports of this at the old national theater that's been torn down. And at the Chinese. And there's a website now that shows audience reactions to The Exorcist. Have you seen that? I, I saw some vintage uh, news clips from the from well, when it a first site came out that shows it shows people coming out gagging, screaming, "Oh, this is terrible! I can't stand it." What was the one shot that pushed people over the top? Was Usually, it-, it was the arteriogram. That, that's what I was
0: thinking too, because when you watch it, you go, well, "That's just as scary, if not scarier, than that supernatural was things." Science. Real things is-
2: that was modern science. And that freaked people out, what the other stuff did as well. But most of the reports of people passing out occurred at that scene. No kidding, not the head turning around? Oh, yeah, but not to the extent of the arteriogram. The vomiting and, you know, the masturbation with a crucifix and all the other stuff, you know. But people were constantly throwing up and passing out. I couldn't believe it. I never thought that would happen. So it's a huge hit when it comes out. It's selling
0: m- millions of dollars worth of $3 tickets. Can you yeah, the original
1: that? run made $193 million in the United States alone, which is $1.2 billion today. Wow. With Jane Fonda, that would have been
0: $7.7 7
1: <laughs> <laughs> But
0: that's still impressive.
1: Yeah, and... um, Amazingly, it became like a CBS TV movie.
0: (laughs) It's nuts. Yeah, because there was only like three channels and you had to sell the, the picture, as they say, to one of the major networks.
1: It's hard to believe they wanted to run it, but they did, and they had an interesting way of editing it for TV.
2: The picture sold for $10 million back in the late 70s to CBS for prime time. Tonight, a CBS special movie presentation. The number one box office movie of its kind. The Exorcist, next. And I redubbed some of the demon voice myself. I matched her (laughs) lips perfectly. There's a line where she screams at Father Karras. She screams, Your mother sucks cocks in hell, Karras, you faithless lying. And I redubbed that myself into your mother still rots in hell. Your mother still rats in hell, Cass.
1: I mean, amazing that he did the the voice himself.
0: Yeah, I mean, not a lot of directors do that. I mean, I guess Tyler Perry. I think he'll do the voice (laughs) of every other actor in the thing if he has to.
1: So what did we learn from The Exorcist? I, I feel like it had a lot of lessons for Hollywood.
0: Well, definitely it reverberates to this day because I was looking on the Google machine the other day and uh, I saw how there's already been like 50 horror movies this year already. Well, there's 50 either coming out or have already been out and that's just like the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, you can't throw a rock without hitting an exorcist these days. That's true. Let's see. There was The Exorcism of Emily Rose. Did that have, Laura? I think, like Laura Linney? You know, you get some top dollar people. Some great actors in these movies. Exorcist 3D, The Reckoning. Remember that? Yeah, and then there was the Exorcist TV show. The Exorcist TV show. Exorcist 4. Uh, Exorcist Babies. Remember Exorcist Babies that came out? That was adorable. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. It was about Ray- Reagan had little babies. They tricycle
1: around the playroom. Yes, they did. <laughs> it was it was so cute. But... uh If I take anything away from this, it it was the experience with with Friedkin. Uh, I just thought he was a master storyteller and just a great guy and clearly was so uh, still present in the moment of making that film.
0: Yes, and he was jet lagged and he was able to talk about The Exorcist for an hour and a half to us, which is amazing.
1: Yeah, you know, this is like one of those things when a musician has, you know, a huge hit song and they're they're sick of talking about it. They don't want to talk about it. This couldn't have been farther from that. He loves this movie. He loves talking about it. And he's obviously really proud of it. You know, I I think that's part of why it's so lasting. He he just really, you know, invested all of himself into, into the making of it. So to wrap things up, it's the 45th anniversary of The Exorcist. October's coming up. A screening will be near you. Go check it out on the big screen. You won't regret it. I certainly won't. Thanks for joining us on the first episode of It Happened in Hollywood. I'm Chip. I'm Seth. And uh, we're sure you might have suggestions for future episodes. We'd love to hear them. Please email them to ihih at thr.com. And remember to subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. Like in the subway?